come to Romans chapter 2 of Romans. Uh, we finished chapter 1 last week. And in the end of chapter 1, Paul is addressing Gentiles. As he comes to chapter 2, but when he gets to verse 17, he's, asking, he's going to be addressing Jews uh, in, in the church and in, in, in the things they need to know. We're talking in here about you know, the consequences of not believing or serving or being faithful to God and living in sin. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 16, uh, there's some debate whether he's addressing primarily Gentiles in the church or Jews within the church. According to verse 9 and 10, where he talks about Jews and Greeks to Gentiles, it appears that he's addressing both. What you have here is, in Paul dealing with this church, is a reminder or just an explanation of how God in his righteousness is able to judge fairly and with justice both those who have knowledge of the law and those who don't. We would extrapolate that today to those who have knowledge of Christ and those who don't have knowledge of Christ. And, and how, how, how are people who have never heard of Jesus, how are they with justice able to be uh, able to come before the Father? And so you have in, this, in these verses just extremely important doctrinal position that we have to understand and we need to agree with or things won't make sense to us in terms of, of who God is. In the uh, book of Amos, uh, I don't know if I've taught Amos here. I think I have, but to be honest, the churches and the books of the Bible, they all run together. And I know I have a, I have a chart of what I've taught here, and I don't remember looking if I've taught Amos or not. I want to say I did, but I want to say I didn't also. So I don't know. That makes me pretty confused. Uh, but in Amos, the first two chapters of Amos, uh, the, the prophet starts off bringing judgment against the surrounding nations of Israel. And then in chapter 2, he talks about Judah to the south, the nation of Israel to the north, two kings, kingdoms at that time. And it allows the place for the Jews uh, in, 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 uh, in Israel, the northern kingdom, to be quite smug with themselves, thinking everything's okay. And then after he's talked about all these other groups and the judgment that's coming, he hammers home the northern kingdom. And in doing so, he lets it know that all people, those with the law, those without the law, are in the judgment of God because of their sinfulness. While not doing exactly the same thing, Paul, in a similar vein, is reminding all people that they are under the judgment of the Lord if they are without, basically, Christ, if they are not right with God. And when you consider that he's writing to a church that he has not been to, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, though it is moving more and more and more into being a Gentile. You understand, and Paul writes this in the mid-50s, the churches in Europe are moving more and more and more into being Greek, Gentile, in the way they deal with things, and less and less Jewish. What he has to say then becomes so important. Therefore, in verse 2, in light of what he's already said, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. It's an interesting thing. In the therefore, it's in light of. He's talking about being without excuse or not having any way to excuse yourself before God. And so here's, here's the thing that, that, that's the argument's beginning this way. Sometimes we forget, I think, uh, that we need to take Scripture holistically, all of it together. And as I said many, many, many times, you look at the Old Testament, and it's always pointing to the new, always pointing to Jesus. But even in pointing to Jesus, there are things there that are fundamentally foundational to everything we believe, especially in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, we are told 
that humans, male and female, men and women, are created in the image of God. And when we talk about created in the image of God, there's a lot of discussion about what that means. You can talk, you can ask people of any, you know, philosophy or religion, what makes a man, man, mankind, mankind, what, what makes humans, humans, what makes us different than the rest of the world. But from the perspective of God, it is that being created in his image, and we wonder, what does that mean? And, you know, there are, and I'd kind of like to review what it means to be created in the image of God. There are three kind of understandings. One is the one most of us are taught growing up. It's substantive. That means we have the same kind of substance of God or we have a soul that lives on. So we have that ability to have an eternal uh, aspect of our life, a soul. But there's a second aspect, and that is relational. And some say the thing that separates us, that gives us the image of God, is the ability to have relationships, both vertical with God, horizontal with other people. And so you see in Genesis, Adam has a relationship with God and a relationship with Eve. Then the third thing is functional. In other words, that we have a function in this life other than ceasing, other than just you know, continually to propagate our race. Our function in God had gives it to Adam is to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the created world. So there's a functional aspect. And I would probably suggest then that really to be created in the image of God is all of those things. When I am created in the image of God, not only do I have a substantive effect and impact that I have something that lives on, I have relationships and I have, I have functionality. There's something that I'm here to do. Now, I say that because all humans are created that way. And so that image of God is damaged or destroyed. But not destroyed, it's more like damaged because of sin. The reason God can bring judgment on all of us, regardless of whether or not in the Old Testament times, in the time of Jesus, they knew they knew the law, or whether in our day they know Christ, is because all of us have the image of God, and with that, a rationale, an understanding that there is something for us here that is unique. First and foremost, it is the ability to worship God. And secondly, it's the ability to deal with other people. In every culture that exists, two things emerge. One is some type of worship, some type of vertical connection to something. The second is a sense of morality, a horizontal connection to something. The animal world simply doesn't have it. Uh, Debbie and I have two uh, dogs now. We, we lost our other two a while back, and then you know, a few months ago we adopted a couple more. We went from pugs to chihuahuas. Uh, they're a different sort, and uh, they're, not, they're not brother and sister, but we got them together, and now they are. <laughs> and one of them, uh, the boy, Finn, uh, likes to uh, chew a lot, uh, right now, he's chasing grubs all throughout my grass, so you know what that means. But evidently, Finn has an affinity for couches. And uh, fortunately, not the leather couch, but the brand new, uh, really nice couch that my, daughter, my wife bought from my daughter right before my daughter went to Birmingham, Finn decided to eat uh, bit by bit. Now, the thing about it is, as frustrating as it is, he simply doesn't know what's wrong. I can't morally rationalize with him. I've tried. It doesn't work. Uh, uh, all he does is lick me. And uh, so, you know, the ability just to be licked by Finn is, is fine, but I, I, I can't get through to him not to, not to eat the uh, couch. And so there is that. And it's what I've discovered over my many years of life is that with animals, there's no, ration, there's no reasoning with them. You cannot reason with uh, an animal. Sometimes you can't reason with a spouse either, but that's another issue altogether. Don't quote me on that, and James erase that off the uh, feed when it comes up. Here's the thing. 
because we have the capability of understanding there's something moral, then we break that morality. We violate that. So whatever your culture is, whatever norms you have set up, whatever rules you have set up, in your culture, they all break them at some point. And they all do something, however they worship, they all end up worshiping that which was created rather than the creator. And there's something inherently wrong with that. So here's the thing that Paul says. Every one of you who passes judgment, whatever your situation, on someone within your culture, and everybody does that, well then, you judge another, you therefore have judged yourself. You're condemned because you are guilty of the same things they are. When you begin the process of evaluating other humans and judging them in light of whatever mores, norms, laws, and values you've had, the minute you've done that, and all of you do that, you have subjected yourself then to the same judgment. And that is the judgment that God has. Because all of us know inwardly there is something, and all of us violate that something that we know is there. And God is thoroughly just. So in verse 2 says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God is just. Uh, we use the word fair a lot. I don't like the word fair. I like uh, Andy Stanley says, fair ended at the Garden of Eden. What is fair to me may not be fair to you. I don't really like to evaluate God in terms of fairness. Sometimes I use that phrase. But what we really need to understand is God is always just in what he does. Whether you and I agree or not, it's irrelevant. He doesn't require our consent. In our constitutional frame of government, the, you know, the, the government rules with the consent of the governed. We have the final say, theoretically at least. I don't think we have that right in reality. We have the final say in how we're governed, but with God we do not. We don't get the final say. He always has that. And so whatever God does is thoroughly just. So that... Verse 3 says, why do you suppose this? But do you suppose this, so man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and you do the same yourself, you think you'll escape the judgment of God? Of course not. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? See, here's the thing, the difference between us and God. We pass judgment quickly. God is patient in his passing of judgment. We judge right now. God holds off judgment giving us time to do what? To repent. In his kindness and his love and his mercy, God is waiting. I think it was in the message for Sunday that I was writing today. I think it was in one of the points that I, that I make, maybe somewhere else, I don't remember, was that the reason we want to see Christ take his time in coming, and I'm not in a hurry for Jesus to come, by the way. Some people are, they want him to come right now. This is what I know. When Jesus comes, the people I love that are lost will no longer have a chance to be saved. I would like to wait till everybody I know is no longer on the face of the earth. Then Christ can come. So, obviously, after I'm dead, and some of you are dead, and some of the people you know are dead, when everybody that I know and care about is gone, then I want Jesus to come. Because for the people that matter to me, there's, they're all gone, so they can't come to Christ. And what I'm simply saying is, there was, a, there was a value in patience so all people can come to salvation. When someone has a bad day and they say, oh, I just, I just wish the Lord was come, I, I think that's 
similar to taking the Lord's name in vain. Because I don't think, that, I think they're making the second coming of Christ just a common profane thing. I don't think they understand what they're asking. They're asking for the lost people to have no chance to be saved simply because you had a bad day. Somewhat absurd, and this is the line of thinking. You judge when God is patient in judging you. You condemn when God is slow to condemn you. Why? To give you the opportunity to come to repentance. But because of your stubbornness, in verse 5, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I talked last week, last week about wrath. Wrath is not the same of ours, our anger, our quick snap anger. It is a slow patience of God. It is, wrath is God's reaction to sin. And so here's the thing. Because we're stubborn, we refuse to repent. Because we're stubborn and refuse to cut other people slack, we are storing up. There is a storehouse, not of our sins, but of the wrath of God. See, we, we think that, you know, too many times people think that, you know, there's some place, there's this warehouse that's weighing, you know, the good, has all the good and bad things that we've done. The idea really is that there is a God who is storing up for us the wrath against all that we have done shy of coming to Christ. And so when we are living in this type of rebellious, judgmental, hardened, harsh condition, we are in essence storing up the wrath of God. Verse 6 is a quote. He says, he will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and mortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfish, ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but don't pay that which is unrighteous, wrath, and indignation. Now, when you take a minute, because Paul is very clear, especially in the book of Romans, that you are not saved by your works. It's truly by grace of God that you're saved. And he used grace through faith. Here it looks like that it is your works that somehow bring about your salvation. Sometimes people pit Paul and uh, James against each other because James will talk about, you know, faith without works is dead. Oftentimes forgetting that Paul and James agree completely in everything. The difference is Paul looks at a person before salvation oftentimes and says your works mean nothing. James oftentimes when you read James he's looking at a person after salvation which says your works mean everything. Paul is taking this approach here. Your works reveal your faith. It reveals your salvation. If I have been saved by grace it is evident in my works. Verse 7, persevering and doing good, seek for glory, honor, and mortality. In other words, the life I live as a follower of Christ is the evidence of my salvation. That's an amen. The life I live, if I am not a follower of Christ, no matter what I may do, is the evidence of my unrepentant heart. Now, here's the thing. If I am truly a follower of Christ, I ought not to be quick to judgment, and I ought not to be quick to condemn, and I ought to be the first who wants to forgive. I have a hard time with that, by the way. But I know it needs to be there, and so I'm constantly praying and seeking that God will help me be patient, put aside my pride, and be forgiving to people who obviously don't deserve my forgiveness. <laughs> so. so you think about that. Verse 9 says this, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, Jew and Greek, the Jew first. In other words, so if you live a life of evil, which is evil is in opposition to God, doesn't matter who you are, for whatever purpose, whether you know God or not, Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, doesn't matter. 
what has been revealed to you. You have enough revelation. We talked in chapter 1 about the general revelation. God has revealed things in general. We have enough revelation that regardless if we live a life of breaking that which we know, whether it be vertical or horizontal, then there is tribulation and distress. But, verse 10 says, glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, so that all people who are revealing a changed life by the doing of good, whether Jew or Greek, can know that there is eternal life. The key thing is Christ. Now, throughout the book of Romans, one of the important things is that all of us come to Christ the same way, by grace, faith. We confess, chapter 10 says, Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead. We are saved with our heart, we believe, and are justified with our mouth, we confess, and we are saved. All who call upon them, the Lord, will be saved. And so what we have to understand is, when you see a person who lives a life in accordance to the way God wants, vertically and horizontally, it is evidence of a relationship with Christ. When you see a person, regardless of their background, who does not live a life right with God vertically and horizontally, it is evidence that they do not have a relationship with Christ. And all people have a certain amount of light. The old, the old phrase is, and she's going to talk about it in a few minutes, God judges us by the light which we have. Now, those who have Christ have a tremendous amount of light. Those who do not have a limited amount. So, verse 12 then says this. Oh, verse 11 says no partiality with God. So, verse 12 says this. All who have sinned, Without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Here's the thing. If you don't have the law, God doesn't judge you by the law. If you've never heard of Jesus, God doesn't judge you by Jesus. He doesn't. He doesn't judge them by what they have not heard. It doesn't mean there's not judgment. But he doesn't say to them, you rejected Christ. They never heard of Christ. Now, if you have heard of Christ and you rejected him, he does then judge you by that. So then what is it that we are to understand here? Verse 13 said, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God. The doers of the law will be justified, but no one does, no one does the law. So Paul is saying, if you obey the law, you'll be justified, but no one completely obeys the law. That's why he goes on, and that's why he said previously in verse 17, you know, by the righteous will live by faith. By faith you're saved. Later on he talks about by faith, by faith, by grace and faith. The Gentiles in verse 14 do not have the law. They do instinctively the things of the law, then not have any law, they are law unto themselves. In other words, they have their own law, they have their own morals, I said, or they have their own values. If they were to follow that completely and perfectly, they would be okay. But nobody does that. And so verse 15 says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience is bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, we have this thing that separates us from all of creation called a conscience. In um, the movie Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket says, what? Always let your conscience be your guide. If you're lost, it's not a bad deal. If I'm not a follower of Christ, my conscience might be a good guide. In fact, even as a follower of Christ, I think my conscience should be my guide. Uh, the difference is my conscience has been <laughs> taken over by the Holy Spirit. So I would say, yeah, let your conscience be your guide. As long as we understand by conscience, we mean the Holy Spirit. Because what is it that condemns us and reveals to us our guilt? Oftentimes it's our conscience. 
Have you ever talked about someone who has no conscience? Have you ever met someone who seems to have no conscience? But what we're saying is they have no concept of guilt. You, talk, you can deal with them, and they never seem to admit any fault or wrong. Uh, I had a person in my life, my wife and I, that were close to us, and uh, did a lot of good works. He did a lot of, I'm not available, that's for me, I'll catch him later. <laughs> he did a lot of things, thought himself really, really uh, righteous and all that stuff, talked about church, all the good things he did. In all the years I knew him, he never once said I was wrong. Never once said I was sorry. You know, he was wrong all the time. He was sorry. He was a sorry a lot of things, but he was sorry. And so when I did his funeral, it was really hard. I have a policy when I do a funeral. If you're not a follower of Christ, I don't pretend you are. It's hard to do that with relatives. I pulled that off, I think. Pat myself on the back. I thought I did a pretty good job on that. But here's the thing. If you're unable to admit fault, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. But if you are able to admit fault, there's also something fundamentally wrong with you. Either way, there's something wrong. We'll see in a few weeks in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of that glory of God. And we're all condemned because of it. So right here it tells us, you know, in their, in their hearts, they know that there's a law. In their hearts, they know there's a right and wrong. In their hearts, because they're created in the image of God, they understand there's a vertical aspect of worship and a horizontal aspect of relationships, and somehow they break those. And they know it. And so their conscience is bearing witness, and their thoughts are alternately accusing or defending them. Sometimes, I don't know, I do, have you ever sinned? And... You defend your sin to yourself. I do it all the time. I'm always thinking, eh, you know, they had it. It wasn't bad. They had it coming. I'm a pastor. I needed to let them know that. It was kind of righteous. It was the best thing to do. And deep down, you know, you're just lying to yourself. You're not lying. To, I mean, you're not fooling God. God's like, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to work. So that's what we do. So verse 16, it says this. On the day when, according, I love this, to my gospel. I love how Paul says that. God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus according to my gospel. Now, here's the interesting thing. All of us are judged according to Christ. You can't hold someone who's never heard of Jesus guilty of not accepting Jesus, but they're guilty of sin, and Christ will reveal that because Christ is the judge. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of Christ. And I don't, I don't care how many views of judgment you have, one, two, seven, it doesn't matter to me. We're all going to stand before Christ. However you want to make it work, makes you happy, we're all going to stand before Christ. I'm a firm believer that Scripture says we're all standing before Christ at the same time. The righteous, the unrighteous, we're all going to be there. And the man, he talks about the judgment of works that reveal whether or not we're saved. We're judged by whether or not we're a follower of Christ. And whether or not we're a follower of Christ will be evidenced by our works. Jesus teaches that in the 25th chapter of Matthew. And so we're going to stand there, and we're all going to know by the life we lived which is exactly what Paul has been saying, whether or not we will be with the Lord. And Paul says he knows that by my gospel, his gospel, that good news. And it's that good news, that gospel of Jesus, that helps us understand where we stand. Because according to the gospel, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you can't come to God. 
So even though you haven't heard of Jesus and you're not judged by that, you are judged by the fact that you have sinned. At the end of the day, all sinners stand condemned unless they have come to God in the grace of God and the faith that he gives us. So what, what this chapter does, it is so important. It answers the what-if question that I've gotten over the last 38 years a thousand times. What if? What if someone who lives in deepest, darkest Africa has never heard about Jesus? Well, what if? Scripture says, Paul says, they have knowledge of God. And they have knowledge of law and they have sinned against it. Matters not whether they have heard of Jesus. We are all condemned because of our sin. We are all condemned because as humans created in the image of God, there's something within us that has the knowledge that should know that there is a way that we have to relate to God and a way that we must relate to other people. And we violate that, we violate that relationship. Whether it's the vertical or the horizontal, we mess it up. So go back to chapter 1, verse 17. What does Paul say? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous man lives by faith. The righteous person. Remember that is the person who is in right standing with God. Is the person of faith. That faith, if you go back to 16, is in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus produces within us faith. That faith in is the means, the avenue by which God, the faith in Christ, God declares us to be in right standing. If we don't have that faith in Jesus, God will not, I'm not going to say God cannot, I'm saying God will not declare us right. Now, if that's true, and we know from chapter 2, verse 1 through 16, all people are condemned. We need to do everything we can to take the gospel throughout the world. That is why the mission imperative is so great. That is why the single most important thing we do as followers of Christ, obviously we worship God, I got that. But the most important thing we do is to share the gospel throughout the world. We share it with the people we know, and we do it through the work of missions and evangelism. We share, we spread, we move the gospel wherever we can, however we can, whatever way we're able to do it. Because people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is through that that they can be, by God, declared right. So that is what we did. And that is what we live by. That is what we strive for. So sometimes, in the life of a Christian, we get busy focused on us, right? I do that. I get busy focused on me. What I like, what I don't like, what I want, what I don't want. And the truth of the matter is, I have to think about them. What about the people that don't know Jesus? What do I need to do to help them come to Christ? One of the things, for instance, this church, before I ever got here, you bought this property so you could relocate to reach more people for Jesus. That's a good thing. You still have to do more, obviously. We have to do things. We have to go out and share the gospel, invite people, tell them, and do all these things. And then we have a burden to people in our entire area that may never come here. We still have a burden to help them somehow, so we help other churches. So I, there's certain people that never come to our church, okay? But other churches can reach them, so we may need to go help them. Oh, we're going to go help you guys reach people. 
Because you're going to reach people we're never going to reach. So we, we've got some resources. We've got some, we got some money. We've got some manpower. We've got some expertise. We've got some, uh, that's the wrong word. We've got some experience. We can help you. So we're going to do that. And we can go, you know, to some of the churches that are struggling, and maybe there's English and Spanish barriers, and we're going to cross a border here or there and say, what can we do to come alongside you and help you reach people that I'm never going to reach? I mean, we were in Mexico last week, you know, and, and I, I couldn't speak Spanish. Joe did. A couple times I had to help Joe out, but uh, he didn't know what some of the drivers were saying to him. I had to translate that for him a little bit. But other than that, we, we, we got to go help them. And we help, and we help, and we help. And we take us, and we put us aside. I like to say this. I'm good to go. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, there's some things I like. All is said and done, I'm good to go. But there are a lot of people I know that aren't good to go. Because they've done all this stuff in chapter 2. And they need to hear the gospel. So I need to put aside me in order to reach them. And the task for all of us, for followers of Christ, how do I live my life putting me aside so I can reach them? Because Paul says, they're going to stand before God and they are going to feel the wrath of God. Because they have stored that wrath up for a day of judgment. Without Jesus, the wrath will be felt. With that in mind, we have a few moments for questions. It's a difficult passage sometimes to understand, so I'm more than happy to answer questions as best I can. If not, I'll let you out a little bit earlier. Didn't have any music? Hell earlier, Pop. Because he's quoting the Old Testament. Or quoting somewhere in an old, Paul is quoting something. Normally, when you see, normally here's the things you see. Things that are in parenthesis normally means, or italics, that some manuscripts don't have them. Normally, if things are capitalized, they're quoting something. Normally, in the Old Testament Sometimes it's a conglomeration, as we saw in the book of Hebrews, of a couple of verses. Like, where did they get that from? It's not found in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a conglomeration. Or sometimes they're quoting wisdom literature, but if they're quoting something. So all caps is quoting, italics or parentheses. It's not, that part is probably not found in certain manuscripts, so there's some debate whether it was in the original. Bolded means pay attention. Yes, ma'am. Against their knowledge, their their relationship yeah. with God, they will be judged by the law, the rules mm. that have been put into place by this connection vertically and horizontally. They're judged by that. They're judged by God in violation of that which he has revealed to them. 
And what he has revealed to them is there is a creator to be worshipped and there are certain law, there's a certain relationship, morals that you have with other people. They're not judged by whether or not per se Jesus, because they never heard of Jesus, but they are condemned not by the Old Testament law, but by what Paul says is the law within themselves. In other words, they know right and wrong. They violate the, wrong, the right that they know because they violate even their own conscience, their own laws, and because they violate worshiping God correctly, which he has said in chapter 1, then they are judged. Chapter 1, remember, remember in chapter 1 from last week, it talks about they worship the created rather than the creator. And then they give up the natural things that should be apparent to them to pursue unnatural lust. Then in chapter 2, he comes and he extrapolates on that simply by saying, that those things that they have done, that, they have, that those things are a law within their heart that they know is right and wrong. That's what they're judged by. About, about Jesus. I mean, judged well, aside from Jesus. if they've never heard Jesus, they're not judged by never hearing Jesus. They're still judged by their sin, uh, but, but they can't be saved either. So the reason we send them Jesus, and Paul will say that later on, is that he's the only way, that's the only way for them to be saved. So they're condemned in their sin. Period. No matter what, you're condemned in your sin. No matter what, you're condemned in your sin. Because you have violated whatever light, whatever knowledge of God you have, you have sinned against that. So you are judged, period. End of story. If they know about Jesus, then obviously they're judged against that. But regardless, they are judged by their violation of what they know to be right or wrong. Does that make sense? Okay. That's correct. They have no hope. It's just why we got to take the gospel. Let's just suppose, I think you've answered this, but let's just suppose that somebody did not know they were sinning, just sinned, but had no idea they were sinning, then can they be held accountable for something they didn't even know that they were doing as a sin? Well, if it's an actual sin, then yes, because they know, for instance, they know there's a God, they worship the creator, creation rather than the creator, that's a sin. The fact that there's laws and regulations that they break, that's a sin. The fact that they're judgmental, whether they view it as sin doesn't matter. The fact that they violate that which is natural or revealed to them, regardless. Oftentimes, the reason people don't think of things that are sin is because of their hardened, sinful hearts. So if, if, I, if I want to come, for instance, and say that, and I'll use a modern example, that I can live over here and have a physical, sexual relationship with whoever I want, and I don't think it's sin. It's still sin. Just because they said it's not doesn't, make it, doesn't mean it that way. It's still sin. And they have enough light inside them to know that it's sin, even though they refuse to admit that it's sin. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. That's right. So if you know you should do something, don't do it, it's sin. If you know you shouldn't do something, do it, it's sin. Yes, sir. I've been there at the detention center thousands of inmates, but some of them have never heard anything about Christ, they've never had a Bible, right. but they still, when you talk to them, they still have a sense of right and wrong. That's right. Even the worst of the worst that I've seen there, and there's something that's pretty bad, they still have the sense of right and wrong. And they were in jail, correct? So they have obviously 
done wrong by the rules of society. So whether even if they don't admit to it, they have done it. So they're, by the fact that they're in jail, they're condemned because of their sin. Except the, unless they're innocent, which you know all of them are. But, so. Anything else? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, that is the very, very end um, of the Sermon on the Mount, when he is bringing it to conclusion, and he talks about good, good fruit and bad fruit in essence. And the fruit that, and, and also there is a, uh, a parable of length that talks about fruit. And fundamental to when Christ teaches, Christ always teaches about fruit, that the fruit reveals the tree. So, uh, for instance, a thorn bush doesn't, doesn't produce figs. So the fruit always reveals the tree. So if you are a follower of Christ, there is fruit that reveals you're a follower of Christ. If the fruit of your life is in opposition to what would be expected of a Christian, it is the evidence that you are not a follower of Jesus. So I always like questions on the Sermon on the Mount. So since Joe, you're laughing because he knows why. That's... Got a degree in that thing, so I'm good to go there. Anything outside of Sermon on the Mount is sketchy, but I'm good on that one. Yes, sir? You talk about this sin or that sin, and then we want to sin, but it all really boils down to the fact that the sin that condemns is the sin of unbelief. He didn't believe it's not, it's condemned already. Let me hear that loud. I didn't hear it. Sin is what? The sin results in condemnation. Yeah. Is the sin of unbelief. John 3. He that believeth not is condemned already. Yeah. Well, well, but it's not the sin that condemns you is sin, period. Doesn't matter what it is. Any sin. Unbelief in John 3, what, what, what Jesus is dealing with is the fact that people have the opportunity to believe and choose not to believe. Therein lies their condemnation. That is the evidence. The fact that they could believe and don't believe. But people who have never encountered Christ don't have the opportunity to not believe. So they're still condemned because of their actions. Because there are other places that talk about you're condemned because of your actions, your sin. For instance, here it talks about you being condemned because of what you've done, uh, what you've violated. In chapter 1, doing that which is unnatural uh, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, going, women going after men, women, men going after men, that which is unnatural. So there, it is not their unbelief that condemns them, it is their actions. When Jesus is talking in John 3, you remember he's talking to Nicodemus, and they're having a d- debate, a discussion on who the Messiah is, and that brings about that particular line of reason. What else? Yep, sir? Uh, one quick one. All right. <clears throat> Back to the Sermon on the Mount. You're the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, yes. put candlesticks, or give light to all that are in the house. Let your good works shine before men that they may mm-hmm. see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, could you please tell us what those works are? I could. You want me to? Okay. <laughs> in the Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning, after they do the Beatitudes, then Jesus says, you are salt, you are light. 
And the primary thing about salt and light, now Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I have to remember, is talking about Christians. And he's talking about Christians and how do you understand someone's a Christian. And talking about salt and talking about light, he's talking about the influence a Christian has in the world in which they live. Salt, fundamentally then, influences everything it touches and it changes it. It fundamentally changes it. So most would say, and I would agree, that when it's talking about salt, it's talking about a moral influence that you may have. When it's talking about light, light dispels darkness. So light is revealing. So when we're talking about light, Jesus is talking about the ability we have as a follower of Christ to reveal the truth of Jesus into the world in which we live. No one would take a light and hide it. You want the light to shine. If you have, therefore, the light of Christ, which is within all believers, the natural thing to do is to share that light to a darkened world to get rid of darkness. All who are true followers of Christ will be salt, will be light. If your salt ceases to be salty, you have a damaged uh, witness, then you have really a useless Christian. You can't do that. If you put out your light, you have put out the influence you have in sharing the gospel. So therefore, when you talk about the good works, in those particular situations, the good works is related to our going into the world and permeating the world and penetrating the world and influencing it, whether it's influencing its salt or influencing its life. It's influencing its salt. It's the moral quality of influence. If it's the light, then it's more like the evangelistic influence that you have. Christians then are salt and light. Those works shine. They're felt. They're, they're impacted. That's the world. That's how you know, Jesus would say, you're a follower of Christ. Then he goes on from there to talk about all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as that, as a transition of how we are to be. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount then is a commentary in many ways on being salt and being light. Does that help? Anything else? Talkative today. All right. We're three. <laughs> 